Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in for episode number nine, The Girl on the Red Velvet Swing. Before we get started, I wanted to just wish you all a very happy Halloween. I know 2020 has been an odd one, so whatever you end up doing, please be safe, use uh, your best judgment, and enjoy some candy. Now, this is a case that I actually did a, a former blog post about. I'm not a blogger anymore, but I definitely found this one quite interesting. I know other podcasts have covered it. Um, One in particular called Criminal, I thought did a great job. But this is a very compelling story, Um, definitely considered a crime of the century. And it basically occurred between the years of 1901 and 1906. And there were three major players involved. So you have essentially a classic love triangle. And at the forefront is Evelyn Nesbitt. And of course, all parties involved have since passed away. But Evelyn was a young showgirl who came from a very, very poor upbringing and found her way in the sort of New York modeling artistic uh, theater scene and captured attention from a very prominent architect who was much, much older than her as well as a very unstable millionaire. And I just wanted to summarize it briefly for you, but that is what we're going to be focused on today. So maybe not the spookiest subject for Halloween. I know that a lot of other podcasts are covering um, the roots of the history of Halloween and, you know, ghost stories, things like that. But I decided to go with this one. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was referenced recently, I think maybe in Uh, Jensen and Holes, the Murder Squad podcast, which is a great one to check out, but it is a really fascinating case, and I hope you enjoy it. On Christmas Day in 1884, Florence Evelyn Nesbitt was born to Winfield Scott Nesbitt and Evelyn Florence in Tarentum, Pennsylvania. Her father was a lawyer and her mother a homemaker. Two years after her birth, the couple produced a younger brother named Howard. Evelyn had a very close relationship with her father. He encouraged her curiosity as a child by establishing a small library for her filled with fairy tales and pluck and luck stories common at that time, and typically regarded as a popular genre for boys. He also encouraged her growing interest in music and dance and suggested she take lessons. In 1893, after the family relocated to Pittsburgh, Evelyn's father died suddenly at the age of 40, essentially leaving the family destitute from his substantial debts. The situation was so dire that they lost their home and their possessions were auctioned off to pay for these outstanding debts. Her mother was unable to find work as a dressmaker, so the family had to rely on the charity of friends and relatives, often staying in one single room in boarding houses. Howard was often sent away to stay with relatives during this time. Eventually, her mother was given a sum of money to rent a structure which she used as a boarding house, often enlisting young Evelyn to collect rent from boarders. This was because her mother was not a savvy businesswoman, and unfortunately, this venture failed. 
1898, Mrs. Nesbitt moved to Philadelphia to find employment as a seamstress. The children were sent to stay with an aunt and then to the care of an Allegheny family. Eventually, she found a position as a sales clerk at Wanamaker's department store. Both 14-year-old Evelyn and 12-year-old Howard also became Wanamaker's employees, working 12-hour days, six days a week. Always a beautiful child, Evelyn had blossomed into a lovely young lady and caught the attention of a female artist who asked her to pose for a portrait. She sat for five hours and earned $1, which was equivalent to approximately $27.50 in 2016. Evelyn quickly became a favorite model as she was introduced to other artists in the Philadelphia area. She convinced her mother to allow her to continue this pursuit as she was bringing in substantially more money than she was working at Wanamaker's. In 1900, Mrs. Nesbitt relocated to New York City, eventually sending for her children in another attempt to find work. The family shared a single back room in a building on 22nd Street in Manhattan. Mrs. Nesbitt finally used letters of introduction given by Philadelphia artists, contacting painter James Carroll Beckwith, whose primary patron was John Jacob Astor. Beckwith was both a respected painter and in turn provided her with letters of introduction to other legitimate artists. Mrs. Nesbitt was essentially forced to take on managing her daughter's career. She was unable to provide either business acumen or guardianship for her daughter and though she claimed that she would not allow her daughter to pose nude, there were two artworks from 1901 that would contradict that. Evelyn was featured on the covers of numerous women's magazines of the period. Some may sound familiar to you, including Vanity Fair, Harper's Bazaar, Women's Home Companion, Ladies' Home Journal, and Cosmopolitan. She also appeared in fashion advertising for a wide variety of products, and she was showcased on sheet music and souvenir items such as beer trays, tobacco cards, pocket mirrors, postcards, and chromolithographs. She also posed for calendars for Prudential Life Insurance, Swift, Coca-Cola, and other corporations. But she's perhaps best known for her work with the artist Charles Dana Gibson, serving as the model for one of his best-known Gibson girl works called Woman, the Eternal Question, where she's featured in profile and her hair formulates a question mark. By 1901, Evelyn was the sole breadwinner for her family at the age of 16. She earned approximately $300 per day in 2019 money. But eventually, Evelyn became bored with the long hours of holding poses in confined artist studios. Her modeling had attracted the interest of several theater promoters who offered her an array of opportunities. And after convincing her mother of this new means to make money for the family, Evelyn auditioned for the wildly popular play Floradora, then enjoying a long run at the Casino Theater on Broadway. In July of that year, she became a member of the show's chorus line, known colloquially as the Floradora Girls. She played a Spanish maiden and was billed as Florence Evelyn, but the cast called her Flossie the Fuss. She detested this nickname, and so she changed her theatrical name to Evelyn Nesbitt. Another Floradora girl, Edna Goodrich introduced Evelyn to the famed architect Stanford White in 1901 when Evelyn was 15 or 16. White, known as Stanny by close friends and relatives, was 46 years old. He was married and had a son, but had a very independent social life and was a notorious womanizer. Initially, Evelyn found White's imposing size appalling and that he seemed, quote, terribly old. 
He was born in New York City in 1853, the son of a Shakespearean scholar who was a dandy and Anglophile with no money, but many connections in New York's art world, including stained glass artist Louis Comfort Tiffany. White had no formal architectural training, which was very much like other designers of the time. Instead, he learned on the job as an assistant. At age 18, he served as the principal assistant to Henry Hobson Richardson, the greatest American architect of the day and creator of a style recognized today as Richardsonian Romanesque. After a tour in Europe to learn about historical styles and trends, he joined with young architects Charles Fallon McKim and William Rutherford Mead to form the firm McKim, Mead, and White in New York City. In 1889, White designed the triumphal arc of Washington Square, which, according to White's great-grandson, architect Samuel G. White, is the structure for which he would best be remembered. Elsewhere in New York City, White designed the second Madison Square Garden, the Cable Building, the New York Herald Building, among other notable edifices. He also designed and decorated Fifth Avenue mansions for the Astors, the Vanderbilts, and other high society families. He was a tall, flamboyant man with red hair and a red mustache. Some found him witty, kind, and generous, while newspapers would call him masterful, intense, burly, yet boyish. Apparently, he was also a collector of rare and costly artwork and antiquities. Regarding his sexual proclivities, according to Simon Batts, quote, he was one of a group of wealthy roués, all members of the Union Club, who organized frequent orgies in secret locations scattered about the city. The White family historian, his granddaughter Susanna Lessard, also wrote, quote, The process of seduction was a major feature of Stanford's obsession with sex, and it was an inexorable kind of seduction which moved into the lives of very young women, sometimes barely pubescent girls, in fragile social and financial situations. Girls who would be unlikely to resist his power and his money and his considerable charm, who would feel that they had little choice but to let him take over their lives. There are indications that Stanford would sometimes adopt the role of a paternal benefactor and then would take advantage of the trust and gratitude that had been built. Keep that in mind for later. White maintained a multi-floor apartment on West 24th Street above the toy store F.A.O. Schwarz, and I wish that store still existed because I was a huge fan growing up. The entrance was next to the store's back delivery entrance, and White invited Evelyn and Edna to join him for lunch one day. In her memoir, Prodigal Days, Evelyn described being overwhelmed by his expensive furnishings and the luxurious apartment. White also had another male guest about the same age, Reginald Ronalds, there, and the luncheon was as extravagant as the setting. Afterward, the party went two flights up to a room decorated in green. A large, red velvet swing was suspended from the ceiling. Nesbitt agreed to sit in it, and White pushed her. The four played spontaneous games around the swing, which later inspired a film around her life. Stanford impressed Evelyn and her mother, and he essentially sponsored the family, moving them into a suite at the Wellington Hotel, which he also furnished. In addition to providing the apartment, he paid for her son Howard to attend the Chester Military Academy near Philadelphia. White also persuaded Mrs. Nesbitt to take a trip to visit friends in Pittsburgh, assuring her he would watch over Evelyn. And while her mother was out of town, the two had dinner and champagne at his apartment, capped by a tour ending at the, quote, mirror room. It was only furnished with a green velvet sofa. They drank more champagne, and Nesbitt changed into a yellow satin kimono at White's request. She later said that this was her last memory, and when she awoke, she was naked in bed next to a naked White, 
and saw blood on the sheets, marking the loss of her virginity. Mark Twain, who was acquainted with White, included an evaluation of his character in his autobiography. Twain said that the New York Society had known for years preceding the incident that the married White was, quote, eagerly and diligently and ravenously and remorselessly hunting young girls to their destruction. These facts have been well known in New York for many years. Despite this, Evelyn allowed White to become her regular lover and close companion for some time. As the relationship faded, she discovered that he had affairs with many other young women, whose names he recorded in a little black book. At a lavish party thrown by Stanford, Evelyn met the young John Barrymore, known as Jack, who would later become one of the most prominent and highly regarded actors of his time. A romance quickly blossomed, and Evelyn became smitten with a more age-appropriate, witty, and fun-loving young man. After an evening out, the couple often returned to Barrymore's apartment, staying up until the late morning hours. At the time, Jack was casually pursuing a career as an illustrator and cartoonist. He had a very small salary and was financially irresponsible. This relationship greatly displeased both Mrs. Nesbitt and Stamford, and they conspired to separate the couple by arranging for Evelyn to go to boarding school in New Jersey. This boarding school was run by Matilda DeMille, the mother of film director Cecil B. DeMille. Still undeterred, Jack proposed to Evelyn, even in the presence of Stanford, but she declined. Stanford and Jack were not the only men vying for her attention. She was also pursued by polo player Monty Waterbury and the magazine publisher Robert Collier. In spite of these relationships, Stanford remained a very large presence in her life and continued to serve as a benefactor. After her role in Floridora ended, Evelyn won a part in The Wild Rose, which had just come to Broadway. The show's producer offered her a contract for a year and made her a featured player as the gypsy girl Vashti. She was hyped in the gossip columns and theatrical periodicals of the day. The New York Herald even featured Evelyn in a two-page article, complete with photographs, promoting her rise as a new theatrical light, saying, quote, her winsome face to be seen only from 8 to 11 p.m. While heaps of praise were piled on regarding her physical appearance and stage presence, very little was mentioned regarding her acting ability. During Evelyn's performances in The Wild Rose, she attracted the attention of a man who introduced himself as Mr. Monroe. He showered her with gifts and money and attended no less than 40 performances. One day, this mysterious Mr. Monroe confronted Evelyn and explained, I am not Monroe, I am Harry Kendall Thaw of Pittsburgh. She did not react with much surprise. She was already used to attracting the attention of wealthy men. Harry Kendall Thaw was the son of a Pittsburgh coal and railroad baron and heir to a $40 million fortune. He had a history of pronounced mental instability dating to his childhood and was known to lead a reckless, self-indulgent life. Violent and paranoid almost since birth, Harry spent his childhood bouncing from private school to private school in Pittsburgh, never doing well and described by teachers as unintelligible and a troublemaker. But still as the son of William Thaw, he was granted admission into the University of Pittsburgh, where he was to read law, though apparently he did very little reading. After a few years, he used his name and social status to transfer to Harvard University. Thaw later bragged that he had studied poker at Harvard. He also went on long drinking binges, attended cockfights, and spent much of his time romancing young women. He was expelled after being picked up for chasing a cab driver through the streets of Cambridge with a shotgun, though he claimed it wasn't loaded. 
After his expulsion, Thaw bounced around between Pennsylvania and New York, shooting up with both morphine and cocaine and frequenting Broadway shows, which he described as, quote, studying. In fact, Thaw made a habit of studying chorus girls, and this hobby first brought him into contact with Stanford White. White had made some disparaging remarks about Thaw to a group of chorus girls that he was engaged in wooing, and Thaw blamed their subsequent snub on White's influence. Also, Thaw's application for membership in the city's elite men's club, such as the Metropolitan Club, the Century Club, the Knickerbocker Club, the Players Club, were all rejected. His membership in the Union League Club of New York was summarily revoked when he rode a horse up the steps into the club's entranceway, a behavior unbefitting a gentleman. All of these snubs, Thaw was convinced, were directly or indirectly due to the intervention of Stanford White, who would not countenance Thaw's entry into these executive clubs. Thaw's narcissism rebelled at such a state of affairs and ignited a virulent animosity towards White. This was the first identifiable incident in a long line of perceived indignities heaped on Thaw, who maintained the unshakable certainty that his victimization was all orchestrated by White. A second incident furthered Thaw's paranoid obsession with White. A disgruntled showgirl whom Thaw had publicly insulted reaped revenge when she sabotaged a lavish party he had planned to throw by hijacking all the female invitees and transplanting the festivities to White's infamous tower room at Madison Square Garden. Thaw, stubbornly ignorant of the real cause of the chain events, once again blamed White for single-handedly destroying his revelries. Thaw's social humiliation was completed when the episode was reported in the gossip columns. Thaw left with a stag group of guests and a glaring absence of doe-eyed girlies. The reality was that Thaw both admired and resented White's social stature, but more significantly, he recognized that he and White shared a passion for similar lifestyles, but White, unlike Thaw, could carry on without censure and seemingly with impunity. White considered Thaw a poser of little consequence, categorized him as a clown, and called him the Pennsylvania Pug, a reference to his babyface features. He is not thought to have been aware of Thaw's animosity towards him. I will post pictures of all, all of the players involved, but I do have to say Pennsylvania Pug is a pretty hysterical nickname, and I would say fairly accurate. In early 1903, while at boarding school, Evelyn underwent emergency surgery for acute appendicitis. However, some sources have speculated that she is actually pregnant, perhaps by Jack Barrymore, and had an abortion. Thaw became solicitous and ensured that she received the best medical care available. He suggested that she go on a European trip, convincing Evelyn and her mother that this would hasten her recovery. Evelyn's mother accompanied them for propriety's sake, but Thaw purposely created a hectic itinerary and a very quick rate of travel, which resulted in tensions between mother and daughter. Evelyn and Thaw carried on to Paris alone, leaving Mrs. Nesbitt in London. In Paris, Thaw pressed Evelyn to become his wife, but she refused. Aware of Thaw's obsession with female chastity, she could not accept his marriage proposal without revealing the truth of her relationship with White. Thaw continued to interrogate her, and ultimately Nesbitt told him of White's assault. Thaw accused her mother of being an unfit parent. The two continued the travel through Europe, and Thaw led her to sites devoted to the cult of virgin martyrdom. This included the birthplace of Joan of Arc in France, and Thaw wrote in the visitor's book, quote, she would not have been a virgin if Stanford White had been around. 
Thought took Evelyn to a Gothic castle in the Austrian state of Tyrol. He had a butler, cook, and maid kept at one end of the castle, while he and Evelyn had isolated quarters at the opposite end. At one point, he locked her in her room, which horrified her, and seemed to completely change. He beat her with a whip and sexually assaulted her over a two-week period. But afterward, he was apologetic and upbeat. After returning to New York, Evelyn talked to friends about her ordeal. Others shared stories about Thaw and a propensity towards a myriad of addictive behaviors. Several men told her that Thaw took morphine and that he was crazy. Although White was still a part of her life, Evelyn realized they had no future together. She also knew her relationship with him had already compromised her reputation. If the full extent of their involvement became common knowledge, no respectable man would make her his wife. She resented White for failing to tell her about Thaw's excesses and derangement. As a teenager, Evelyn had spent her formative years in the company of adults. Her mother had remarried, and although she had been an inept guardian before, their estrangement was now complete. Evelyn was desperate to escape the poverty which she and her family had long suffered. Thaw continued to pursue her for marriage. He said he would change and that when they were married, he would live the life of a, quote, Benedictine monk. With a perverted sense of justice and a show of magnanimous charity, Thaw assured her that he had forgiven her relationship with White. Eventually, Evelyn consented to marry Thaw. His mother agreed to the marriage on the condition that she give up theater and modeling and refrain from talking about her past life. They were married on April 4, 1905 in Pittsburgh. Thaw chose her wedding dress, and he chose a black traveling suit decorated with brown trim. Newspaper announced, newspapers announced that the new Mrs. Thaw was now the, quote, mistress of millions. They took up residence in the Thaw family home, Lindhurst and Pittsburgh. Isolated with his mother and her like-minded social group, strict Presbyterians, Evelyn became the proverbial bird in a gilded cage. In later years, she said that the Thaws had a shallow value system, quote, the plane of materialism which finds joys in the little things do not matter. It's the appearance of things. Evelyn had imagined travel and entertaining, but found that her husband acted as a pious son. Thaw started a campaign to expose White, corresponding with reformer Anthony Comstock, a crusader for moral probity and the expulsion of vice. He became convinced that he was being stalked by members of the notorious Monk Eastman Gang of New York, believing that White had hired them. Evelyn later said, Thaw imagined his life was in danger because of the work he was doing in connection with the vigilant societies and the exposures he had made to those societies of the happenings in White's flat. On June 25, 1906, Thaw and Evelyn stopped in New York before boarding a luxury liner bound for a European holiday. Late that day, Thaw said that he had tickets for them for the premiere of Mademoiselle Champagne, written by Edgar Allan Wolfe at the rooftop theater of Madison Square Garden. They first stopped at the Café Martin for dinner, where they happened to see Stanford White before going to the theater. Despite the heat, Thaw wore a long black overcoat over his tuxedo and refused to remove it. At 11 p.m., as the stage show was coming to a close, Stanford White appeared taking his place at a table customarily reserved for him. Spotting his arrival, Thaw approached him several times, each time withdrawing. During the finale, I Could Love a Million Girls, Thaw produced a pistol and from two feet away fired three shots into White's head and back, killing him instantly. Thaw addressed the crowd, but witness reports varied as to his words. 
according to one witness, he said, roughly, I did it because he ruined my wife. He had it coming to him. He took advantage of the girl and then abandoned her. You'll never go out with that woman again. On June 7th, the New York Times reported, another witness said the word was wife instead of life, contradicting the report made by the arresting officer. The crowd initially thought the incident might be a practical joke, but became very alarmed when realizing that White was dead. Thaw brandished the pistol and was taken into police custody. Evelyn managed to extricate herself from the ensuing chaos on the Madison Square rooftop, and not wanting to return to their hotel suite, she took refuge for a number of days in the apartment of a chorus girlfriend. Years later, she said, A complete numbness of mind and body took possession of me. I moved like a person in a trance for hours afterward. As early as the morning following the homicide, news coverage became both chaotic and single-minded. A person, place, or event, no matter how peripheral to the killing of Stanford White, was seized on by reporters and hyped as newsworthy copy. Facts were thin, but sensationalist reportage was plentiful in the heyday of tabloid journalism. The hard-boiled male reporters of the Yellow Press were bolstered by a contingent of female counterparts christened Sob Sisters, also known as the Pity Patrol. Initially, female spectators were allowed to witness the proceedings. When the case came to trial, the judge banned women from the courtroom, accepting Thaw family members and the female news reporters there on legitimate business. They were less sympathetic to Evelyn than Thaw. Nixola Greeley-Smith wrote of Evelyn, I think she was sold to one man and later sold herself to another. In an article titled The Vivisection of a Woman's Soul, she described her unmaidenly revelations as she testified on the stand. Quote, Before her audience of many hundred men, young Mrs. Thaw was compelled to reveal in all its hideousness every detail of her association with Samford White after his crime against her. This rampant interest in the White killing and its key players were used both by the defense and prosecution to feed malleable reporters any scoops that would give the respective sides an advantage in the public forum. One account keynoted Evelyn's vulnerability, saying, quote, Her baby beauty proved her undoing. She toddled as innocently into the arms of Satan as an infant into the outstretched arm of parental love. Neither was her mother spared the scrutiny of rogue reporting. Quote, she knew better. She also knew she was sacrificing her child's soul for money. Church groups lobbied to restrict the media coverage, and President Theodore Roosevelt decried the newspaper's penchant for printing the full, disgusting particulars of the trial proceedings. He conferred with the U.S. Postmaster General on the viability of prohibiting the dissemination of such printed matters through the United States mail, and censorship was threatened but never carried out. A week after the killing, the film Rooftop Murder was released for public viewing at the Nickelodeon theaters, rushed into production by Thomas Edison. The late Stanford White was hounded in death, excoriated as a man in question as an architect. The Evening Standard concluded he was more of an artist than architect. His work spoke of his social dissolution. The nation was also critical. Quote, he adorned many an American mansion with relevant plunder. Richard Harding Davis, a war correspondent and reputably the model for the Gibson man, was angered by the tabloid press, saying that they distorted the facts about his friends. Vanity Fair published an editorial lambasting White, which prompted Davis to write a rebuttal. His article on August 8, 1906 in Collier's attested that White, quote, admired a beautiful woman as he admired every other beautiful thing God has given us. 
and his delight over one was as keen as boyish as grateful over any others. White was buried in St. James, New York. He died at the age of 52. Thaw's mother was adamant that her son not be stigmatized by clinical insanity. She pressed for the defense to follow a compromise strategy, one of temporary insanity, or what in that area was referred to as brainstorm. Acutely conscious that her own family had a history of hereditary insanity, and after years of protecting her son's hidden life, she feared his past would be dragged out into the open, ripe for public scrutiny. Protecting the Thaw family reputation had become nothing less than a lifetime crusade for his mother. She proceeded to hire a team of doctors at a cost of some $500,000 to substantiate that her son's act of homicide constituted a single aberrant act. Evelyn, in later years, described the determination with which Thaw's family worked to favorably spin his mental deficiency, quote, The Thaws will put the biggest lunacy experts the money can buy on the stand. Harry was a madman, but they will prove it nicely. Again maneuvering her way through the gauntlet of report again maneuvering her way through the gauntlet of reporters, the public, sketch artists, photographers, and others, Evelyn returned to her hotel and the assembled Thaw family. The Thaws may have promised Nesbitt a comfortable financial future if she provided testimony at trial favorable to Harry's case. It was a conditional agreement. If the outcome proved negative, she would receive nothing. The rumored amount of the money that the Thaws pledged her for cooperation ranged from 25000 to $1 million. Evelyn was now well aware that any solicitude or kindness shown her by the Thaw enclave was predicated on her pivotal performance on the witness stand. She was to prevent a pitiful portrait of innocence betrayed by the lascivious Stanford White. Thaw was to be the white knight whose noble, courageous act had avenged his wife's ruin. Evelyn's mother remained conspicuously absent throughout her daughter's entire ordeal. She had been cooperating with prosecution as Thaw's lawyers considered her culpable of prostituting her daughter to Stanford White. Her brother Howard, who had come to regard Stanford White as a father figure, blamed Evelyn for his death. Harry Kendall Thaw was tried twice for the homicide of Stanford White. Evelyn testified at both trials. Her examination on the witness stand was an emotionally torturous ordeal. In open court, she was forced to expose her relationship with White and to describe the intimate details of the night she was raped by Stanford White. Until then, the night of her sexual assault had been a secret she had guarded at the request of White. And other than Stanford, only she and Thaw knew what had happened. Due to the unusual amount of publicity the case had garnered, the jury members were ordered to be sequestered, the first time in the history of American jurisprudence that such a restriction was ordered. The trial proceedings began on January 23, 1907, and the jury went into deliberation on April 11th. After 47 hours, the 12 jurors emerged deadlocked, 7 voted guilty, and 5 deemed him not guilty. Thaw was outraged that the trial had not vindicated the killing and that jurors had not recognized it as the act of one chivalrous man defending innocent womanhood. At the second trial, Thaw pleaded temporary insanity. He was found not guilty on the ground of insanity at the time of the commission of his act. He was sentenced to involuntary commitment for life at the Matawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Beacon, New York. His wealth allowed him to arrange accommodations for his comfort and be granted privileges not given to the general population. Immediately after his confinement, Thaw marshaled the forces of a legal team charged with the mission of having him declared sane. The effort took seven years. 
the prolonged legal procedures compelled his escape from Matawan. In 1913, he strolled out of the asylum where a prearranged car and driver waited to take him over to the Canada-U.S. border and to Sherbrooke, Quebec. He was extradited to the U.S., but in 1915 was released from custody after being judged sane. Before this had happened, though, Evelyn gave birth to their son, Russell William Thaw, on October 25, 1910, in Berlin, Germany. She always maintained that her son was Thaw's biological child, conceived during a conjugal visit to Thaw while he was confined at Matawan, although he denied paternity throughout his life. In 1911, Evelyn reconciled with her mother, who took the role of caregiver for Russell while Evelyn sought out opportunities to support herself and her son. Russell Thaw would appear with his mother in at least six films, and he later went on to become an accomplished pilot, placing third at the 1935 Bendix Trophy Race from Los Angeles to Cleveland, ahead of Amelia Earhart, who made fifth place. As mentioned, throughout the prolonged court proceedings, Evelyn had received financial support from the Thaws, these payments made to her through the family's attorneys had been inconsistent and far from generous, and after the close of the second trial, the Thaws virtually abandoned her and cut off all funds. Her grandson Russell Thaw recounted a piece of family lore in a 2005 interview with the Los Angeles Times. Purportedly, she had received $25,000 from the Thaws after the culmination of the trials. Despite them, she then donated the money to political anarchist Emma Goldman, who subsequently turned it over to investigative journalist and political activist John Reed. Evelyn was now left to her own resources to provide for herself. She found modest success working in vaudeville and on the silent screen. In 1915, Evelyn divorced Thaw. The following year, she married dancer Jack Clifford. The two had worked up a stage act together. Unfortunately, their marriage was not a success, and Evelyn seemed unable to start a new life as the public refused to let her relinquish her past. Audiences came to see the lethal beauty associated with the playboy killer who shot Stanford White. Clifford came to find his wife's notoriety an insurmountable issue, with his own identity subsumed as that of Mr. Evelyn Nesbitt. He left her in 1918, and she divorced him in 1933. Meanwhile, 1916, Thaw had been charged with the kidnapping, beating, and sexual assault of 19-year-old Frederick Gump of Kansas City, Missouri. His acquaintance with Gump dated to December 1915, and Thaw had worked to gain the trust of the family. He enticed Gump to come to New York under the pretense of underwriting the teenagers' enrollments at Carnegie Institute. Thaw reserved rooms for Gump at the Hotel McAlpin, and the New York Times later reported that upon his arrival, Gump was confronted by Thaw, armed with a short, stocky whip rushing for him. After the assault, Thaw fled to Philadelphia with police in pursuit. When apprehended, he was found to have attempted suicide by slashing his throat. Initially, Thaw tried to bribe the Gump family, offering to pay them a half a million dollars if they would drop all criminal charges against him. Ultimately, he was arrested, jailed, and tried. Found insane, he was confined to Kirkbride Asylum in Philadelphia, where he was held under tight security. Once again, he was ultimately judged sane and regained his freedom in 1924. His obituary later printed in the Times the day after his death in 1947 implies that Thaw's mother and the Gump family arrived at a monetary settlement. In the 1920s, Evelyn became the proprietor of a tea room located in the West 50s in Manhattan. And during this period, and well into the 1930s, she unfortunately struggled with alcoholism and morphine addiction. During the 1930s, she worked on burlesque stages throughout the country, though not as a stripper. In 1939, 
The then 53-year-old Nesbitt told a New York Times reporter, quote, I wish I were a strip teaser. I wouldn't have to bother with so many clothes. Thaw, who was late as 1926, was still keeping his ex-wife under surveillance by private detectives, went to Chicago where Evelyn was hospitalized. He had learned that, despondent after losing her job dancing, she had swallowed a disinfectant in a suicide attempt. This caused the press to speculate about the status of their relationship. In 1926, he published a book of memoirs called The Traitor, written to vindicate his murder of White. Thaw never regretted what he had done. And 20 years after having taken White's life, Thaw said, quote, under the same circumstances, I'd kill him tomorrow. During World War II, Evelyn lived in Los Angeles, California, teaching ceramics and sculpting at the Grant Beach School of Arts and Crafts. On June 5, 1945, she was questioned about the murder of Albert Langford, the husband of her friend Marion Langford. The man was allegedly slain by one of two men who he would not allow to speak to his wife. The identity of the murderer was never proven. Thaw died of a heart attack in Miami, Florida on February 22, 1947, at the age of 76. At his death, he left an estate with an estimated value of $1 million, which would be equivalent to $11 million as of 2019. In his will, he left Evelyn a bequest of $10,000, which would be $115,000 as of 2019, or essentially about 1% of his net worth. He was buried in Allegheny Cemetery in Pittsburgh. Evelyn was technical advisor to the 1955 movie, The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, about her life and White's murder, for which she was paid $10,000. The movie is considered a highly fictionalized account of her life and stars Joan Collins. In her lifetime, she published two memoirs, The Story of My Life in 1914 and Prodigal Days in 1934. She lived quietly for several years in Northfield, New Jersey, but returned to California. There, in Santa Monica on January 17, 1967, at the age of 82, she died in a nursing home. She had been a resident there for more than a year, and she was buried at Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City, California. And that is the story of Evelyn Nesbitt, Stanford White, and Harry Thaw, the craziest turn-of-the-century love triangle there ever was. And all I can think about is poor Evelyn. I mean, she's the one with the beauty. She's the one with the charisma. And yet she was used by pretty much everyone in her life, her mother, her husband, and her lover. Just because you're beautiful doesn't mean life is easy at all. But very interesting story. And I think there are a lot of um, topics in this story, especially with regards to the power of men versus women, the power of money, and people taking advantage of you know, vulnerabilities in the artistic and entertainment world. I mean, all of this is still very, very relevant, but my goodness, the characters in this are really larger than life. Okay, and now for something beautiful. This week I've chosen the Tangle Teaser, which is a hairbrush originally developed in the UK by a colorist named Sean P. And in 2007, he was looking for a quick and easy way to detangle clients' knots without tugging and pulling. And that is when he had his light bulb moment and created this patented two-tiered technology, um, two-tiered teeth technology, talk about alliteration. 
And what this does is it quickly detangles the hair and ensures that there's very minimal damage and leaves the hair soft and shiny. Their very first invention, the original Tangle Teaser detangling hairbrush, is multi-award winning and lauded by beauty experts and celebrities alike. And in fact, it won two Queen's Awards for Enterprise. You can pick from a variety of fun colors and designs. There are even custom options available, but they also have different versions of the brush for fine and fragile hair that's color treated as well as thick and curly hair. I found mine from Ulta, but you can buy it on their online store at tangleteaser.com, Walgreens, Target, Walmart, and a bunch of other retailers, but huge fan of this. Instead of having my old little mini brush in my purse, I like having this around because it actually comes with like a little closure, if you will, so it's not getting all bent or the, you know, the teeth of the brush aren't falling out. And it's just, if it's right in the palm of your hand, the one thing I'll say is that it does not have a handle. So if you're really stringent on that, then it may not be the best fit, but quite frankly, it's like one of, it's like a perfect little pocket brush and it really does what it says. It detangles without any sort of pain or irritation. And I think especially those with long hair, I mean, that that makes such a big difference. And it really does kind of leave the hair looking smooth and glossy. You'll really look like Marsha Brady after she brushes her hair for 100 strokes. So highly recommend it. I will post a picture, but check that out. Tangle Teaser. everyone thank you so much for listening to episode nine the girl in the red velvet swing i hope you enjoyed it i hope you have a wonderful halloween you stay safe out there and whatever you do wear a mask even if you're wearing a mask like a michael's myers mask wear a mask over a mask you cannot mask it up enough and if you want to uh, find more information follow on instagram crimeandbeauty.podcast facebook at crime and beauty podcast you can send me a gmail at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com and um, you can listen pretty much everywhere you listen to podcasts as well as podbean.com that's crimeandbeauty.podbean.com apple google spotify amazon you name it so um, let me know what you think again would love to hear your feedback case suggestions all that kind of goodness Um, And until next time, thanks for listening and stay beautiful.